2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, tells us to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God, to be workers who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, or some translations say, handling the word of truth. We quote that verse quite frequently as it's an important verse for us as Christians, reminding us of the need to take seriously our study of the Word of God and to make sure that we're properly applying it as it's meant to be applied and not twisting it or adding in our own thoughts or leaving things out in regards to application to our lives. title of our lesson tonight is Questions from the Box, and you might be wondering, what does that mean? <laughs> Well, for some time we've had a little blue box it's back behind Donna there on the table. And that box is meant for questions or sermon suggestions or topics that maybe somebody might want to hear a lesson or a Bible study on. And so from time to time, we'll have somebody put some suggestions or some questions in there. And sometimes those questions in and of themselves would serve uh, for the entirety of a whole sermon. And sometimes they're maybe able to be answered in a little bit shorter amount of time. And that happened to be the case with a number of them. And so I thought that we would take a, a few of those tonight and answer them for the benefit of not just the one who had asked the question, but for the benefit of us all. So, Lord willing, as time goes on, uh, hopefully we can, maybe once a month, have some more questions from the box, and we can have lessons like this in which we address a number of topics rather than just one particular subject throughout the sermon. The first question that we're going to look at this evening, and you have them all in the bulletin there, and you'll notice that I didn't put much else other than the question, so it's going to be up to you to write down the answers as we look at some things together. But the first question that was submitted that I chose for this evening is, why did Jesus ask his Father to glorify him in John 17, the first five verses? Well, that's a good question. So. Let's first go and read that together in John 17. This entire chapter is a prayer of Jesus to his Father shortly before the events of the cross and all the things that corresponded there. So to notice the first five verses, it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
So I guess at face value, as you might read through that, you might be thinking, well, that seems like uh, the opposite of Christ's personality. He was always so humble and always submitting to the Father's will, and here he's requesting this glory to be given to him. And so uh, we can understand why someone might wonder about that and what was the purpose of his request. Well, I think the first thing that we might consider as we think about why Jesus asked for what he asked for here is he longed to go back home. Uh, We forget sometimes that Jesus left the place that we are all longing for. He was there and had been there throughout eternity with his father. But he left heaven and came to the earth so that he might fulfill the plan of salvation and he could serve as a sacrifice for our sins, something that we ourselves could not produce. Let's look over here in Hebrews chapter 12 for just a moment. And you're going to have to turn with me to all the scriptures tonight, except there'll be one at the end that I'll have up on the screen. But the rest of them we're going to turn and read together. Give us some exercise here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 It says, therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And notice verse 2, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And so we notice here, the Hebrew writer points out the fact that Jesus was able to keep going and to keep pushing forward through all the suffering and all the difficulty that he had to endure because he was looking forward to that joy of being reunited with his father, of going back home and, of course, reigning over the kingdom that he had now established, having died and being raised again. Now, we might also think about the sense of Jesus being glorified so that the plan could ultimately be completed. You know, part of the plan was not only that Jesus would die, but also that he would Uh, be raised again on the third day. And that resurrection is so important in regards to the establishment of his kingdom and the verification of who he claimed to be and all these types of things. In John chapter 12, turn back there with me, we see here that Jesus acknowledges the need for him to be lifted up. Now, here specifically, he's more so uh, directing his thought to the the crucifixion itself and his suffering that would be necessary in order for us to have salvation and hope. Start there with me in verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But no, he says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. In other words, Jesus knew well in advance of 
ever leaving heaven, that he was going to die, that he was going to suffer. He understood that that was his purpose. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And he said this signifying by what death he would die. So Jesus understood that he had to be lifted up on the cross first and foremost in order to draw all men to himself. That being lifted up on the cross led to him being lifted up from the tomb and ultimately lifted up from the earth to reign over his kingdom. Number of passages we might note in addition here. Let's come over to Romans chapter 1. Paul stresses here the importance of the resurrection. Notice the introduction of his letter here, the first four verses. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and notice declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. And how was that? He says, by the resurrection from the dead. And so the ultimate evidence of who Jesus is is the fact that he rose again. Confirms all the other truths that he taught. And as such also confirms the truths of the Old Testament. And we talked some about that this morning, how Christ was a fulfillment of all of the things contained in the old law. Let's go over here to 1 Peter chapter 3. Notice with me verses 21 and 22. He says here, as he's been talking about Noah and the ark and the salvation, we might say, that came through the ark for those eight souls that were on board. He says, there is also an antitype which now saves us, and that being baptism. He says, this is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And notice, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And finally, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, there Paul is discussing what is going to take place at the end of time. And we see here in verse 24 that when the end comes, he says that he is going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. So, as we think about, again, why would Jesus request to be glorified? Well, one of the first things he identifies is so that God would likewise be glorified. And Jesus understood that if he was glorified through his resurrection, 
and through ascending back to the right hand of God to reign over this new kingdom, that ultimately that would glorify the Father. And in the end, that kingdom, as we've read, will be delivered back to him. Another question that we had in the box. That question is, do Gandhi and Hitler both burn equally in hell? I guess it's kind of, if we wanted to rephrase that, it would be, uh, do all people, if they are sinners, if they are sentenced to hell fire, uh, will the experience be the same for them all? Or will it be different based upon what they did in their life? You know, if they... We think about Hitler, that's kind of the go-to. If we think about someone that's just terrible, well, we compare him to Hitler, right, because of all the atrocities that he committed during his lifetime. But, of course, Gandhi was a very peaceful person. Uh, he was uh, somebody who uh, was a leader of the Indian people and preached peace. And, of course, he was someone who believed in and practiced Hinduism, but his life overall was, was very different from that of Hitler's and the kinds of things that he was involved in. So uh, can we answer that question? You know, some of these questions get into things where maybe we don't really know for sure. But I think we can see some passages that maybe would suggest one way or another. Now, a couple passages we're going to note here. Jesus seems to mention that there will be harsher punishments for some. Uh, depending on what they have done in their lives. Let's come over to the book of Luke. And first of all, in chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 10 there. Read down through verse 16. Jesus is speaking. He says, Whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But I say that it will be more tolerable, notice this, in the day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears, uh, he who hears you hears me, Jesus says. He's speaking to the, the 70 that he's sending out. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So Jesus here, as he's talking about these cities that they're going to be going and proclaiming the coming kingdom to, he says if they outright reject the message, it's going to be worse for them in the judgment day than it was for some of these other famous cities, and they're famous not for good things, but, but for bad things. He talks about Sodom, and he talks about uh, Tyre and Sidon, we know these cities, if you go back in the Old Testament and study those things, uh, were sinful cities. So, we see here that Jesus seems to suggest that there could be, or will be, a harsher punish punishment for some. 
Now let's come over a couple pages to Luke chapter 12. You might notice here as well, in verse 42 beginning, we'll read down through verse 48. We find that the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give him their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming. And so he begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink, and to be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour when he's not aware. And he will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, notice verse 47, who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself, or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So here again we see this example that Jesus is talking about in regards to uh, the reward or punishment of servants to their masters. And he says if You've got this servant who knows very well that he's just blatantly uh, going against the commandments of his master. Well, he's going to receive a very harsh punishment for that. On the other hand, you might have somebody who's doing things that are wrong. Maybe they're not aware that they shouldn't be doing those things. They're still going to be punished. Uh, But he says they're going to have a few stripes as compared to this other individual. So this might suggest to us that Depending on what we choose to do in life, we might find ourselves uh, in a condition of greater suffering or I guess any suffering is not going to be good. We don't want to say that, well, as long as you're not too bad, you don't have to worry. Uh, we know that hell is some place that none of us want to be. It's a place that was never meant for any of us. As Matthew 25 explains, it's prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, but nonetheless, there could be more severe punishment. Now, another example we might think about is in 2 Peter chapter 2. Throughout the second chapter of Peter's second epistle, he's um, discussing those that are false teachers, those that are blatantly rebellious against God, and he's describing uh, their personalities and their conduct in different ways. And one of the things that he gets to discussing is the fact that they're leading faithful followers of the Lord astray because of their uh, false promises and their twisting of Scripture and these kinds of ideas. And so down at the end of the chapter, as we look at verse 20, he's talking about those who are going to be misled by these false teachers. And so he says, If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then are again entangled in those things, and then overcome. So in other words, somebody who, they come out of their sins, they embrace God's grace, they're obedient to Him, but then they return back to those sinful things again, and they forsake God. He says, 
the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And he says it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed who are wallowing in the mire. So you can think about the mental anguish of somebody who had a hold of eternal life, but let go of it. And you can, you can imagine, just put yourself in that situation. You find yourself eternally separated from God, and I guarantee the only thing you're going to be thinking about is, you know, I was there. I, I, I had my, my hand in his hand, and he was leading me, and then I, I let go. And you can imagine how much greater, uh, suffering that's going to produce in somebody. So I think these passages seem to suggest that depending on how blatantly disobedient and rebellious we are in regards to our our loving Father, uh, there could be greater degrees of punishment awaiting us in the end. Now here's another question maybe somewhat related to the last one. What about people who live their whole life never obtaining knowledge of Jesus? Will they be lost eternally? That's kind of one of those age-old questions that you you hear so frequently, especially with skeptics of the Bible. That's one of the things that, that they love to jump on. Well, what about this guy out here in the jungles, these aborigines, and they have no knowledge of Jesus or the Bible, and you're going to tell me they're lost? You know, and it, it's kind of a, well... God must be this monster, right, to send these people to hell who never even had a a chance to learn uh, what they needed to do to be saved. Well, the first thing that I like to point out in regards to answering this kind of a question is we know that God is going to judge righteously. One thing that we have to understand is, thankfully, we are not the judges. Uh, That's made plain to us. Uh, Various places throughout the scripture. God is the judge, and he's going to judge righteously. In Genesis 18 and verse 25, on the course of the conversation that Abraham had with God as they were talking about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God had explained that he was going to destroy those cities, and you remember Abraham was thinking, well, I've got family there. You know, my nephew is there with his family, and so he tries to whittle God down in regards to the amount of people that might be found faithful there that would allow the cities to be spared, and he gets them all the way down to ten. But there aren't even ten. and So, thankfully, God, we see, is still merciful, and he sends his angels into the city to deliver Lot and his family out. Uh, But the cities themselves are lost because of their commitment to rebellion against him. But Abraham makes a statement there. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do right, is is the question he asks, kind of rhetorically there. And we know throughout the scriptures that God has proven himself and demonstrated the fact that he is indeed a righteous judge. And so some of these matters, in, in a lot of ways, are kind of beyond our ability to maybe answer perfectly because we're not the judge. But there are some other things that we need to uh, take a moment to understand. 
The scriptures explain that there are some who are not mature enough to understand the Bible. And that would pertain to children. That would pertain to maybe somebody who has a a mental handicap of some sort to where they just truly aren't capable of really understanding the message of the scriptures and the plan of salvation and the fact of, of sin and how we are all guilty of that if we live long enough to go against God's commands. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and verse 39, if you want to jump back there with me into the Old Testament here for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39, now you recall how the Israelites, uh, they believed the report of the ten versus the two in regards to spying out the land of promise, and so God said, well, then you're not going to enter in. You're going to wander in the wilderness And so, in verse 39, he's explaining here that their children are going to be the ones ultimately to go in and inherit what they had forfeited. But notice how he describes them here. In verse 39, he says, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today, notice, have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So that shows us at least one place where we can demonstrate the fact that those that are uh, incapable, those that are young or otherwise mentally unable to understand right from wrong, uh, these are exempt from any kind of of punishment from God or separation from Him. Now, another place that we might think about is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, in the context here, we find that King David had committed adultery, as you recall, with Bathsheba. And, of course, he tries to cover all that up. He ends up killing Uriah, her her husband, and ultimately is confronted by the prophet Nathan about all these things. And it's explained to him that the child that's going to be a product of that union that he'd made uh, is not going to live. That's going to be uh, punishment, in other words because of his sin. So when the child actually becomes sick, we find David, he's fasting, he's, you know, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, he is praying to God, pleading with God that there might be mercy shown in some way that this child might live. Uh, But ultimately, we understand, of course, that that is not the case. And so when he finally learns that the child had passed on, He gets up and talks about how he changed his clothes, he cleans himself up, he goes in and he worships and he asks for a meal, be prepared, he eats something, and his servants are watching all this and they're thinking, that's kind of strange. Why would he be acting that way after the fact? You know, you think if there's any time to mourn and to be distraught, it's going to be now. But rather, he's doing just the opposite. And so they question him about that. And his answer is is also telling to the point that we're making here. In verse 23, he says, Now the child is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Well, the obvious answer is, well, no. We, we can't resurrect the child from the dead. But notice he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So David understood that that child was now with the Lord. And as long as he lived faithfully, he could go and be with that child again. Now, another thing that's important for us to notice is that willful ignorance 
which is what a lot of people are, are guilty of, is willful ignorance, is never a valid excuse in the Scriptures. Let's come over to 2 Thessalonians. We read here Paul describing things that are going to happen at the end of time when Jesus returns. Specifically here, he's focused on what's going to happen to those who are not right with God on that day. So let's start there in verse 8. It says, In flaming fire, Jesus will take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So there's two classes of people that he talks about there. There's those that just simply have refused to obey the gospel. That's that's the one. But before that, he talks about those who do not know God. Those, we might say, who are ignorant of God. So we see here that this, this chosen ignorance is not going to serve as an excuse on that day. They can't say, well, I didn't know about you. I didn't know about your word. In Acts chapter 17, Paul also talks about these things. Acts chapter 17, look at verses 30 and 31. Notice as he's preaching to those there in Athens, he says, truly these times of ignorance, God is overlooked. There was a period of time in the past where you know people were ignorant of things regarding God's will. But he says, now he has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. And he's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. So again, uh, passages such as these show us that uh, ignorance is really no excuse when it comes to judgment. And it begs the question, really, if you stop and think about it, If ignorance was a valid excuse, why would we have any kind of commandment to go and preach to the, to the lost? We better, we'd be better served to just be quiet. Don't tell them anything. That way they won't have to worry about anything, right? No, it's just the opposite. We're, we're exhorted time and time again to preach the word in season and out of season, to be ready to exhort and to rebuke and to teach people the truth. And another thing to consider, if ignorance is enough to save, then why did Christ even follow through with anything that he went through? Why did he even come to the earth? Why not just stop and say, well, no, let's just leave them all ignorant of all this stuff, and and that way they'll all be saved. What a shame that would be if Christ suffered all of that when ignorance would have been perfectly valid as an excuse on the judgment day. Notice with me over here in Galatians. We think about Galatians chapter 2, we typically think about verse 20, and rightfully so, it's a good verse. I might as well go ahead and read that in addition to verse 21. But verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, And gave himself for me. Notice verse 21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. 
For if righteousness comes through the law, now here he's talking about the law of Moses, he says, then Christ died in vain. If there was salvation through some other route, any other route, including the law of Moses, if that could have led people to eternal life in and of itself, then why did Jesus die? Is what Paul is explaining here. And so, again, this shows us that it was necessary for Christ to die. There was a reason that all these things had to happen as they did. There is a reason that Jesus says, go into all the world and teach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned. So again, we can't play God and we can't know for certain the outcome of every single uh, what-if scenario that a person might dream up. But we can know certain truths, and that is that God expects his people to be spreading the truth, be teaching the truth, because those who are willfully ignorant on the day of judgment uh, are not going to be spared according to what has been recorded in the word of God. So really, it, it... It shows us how important our mission is, doesn't it? One more question for tonight. Another interesting one to to stop and think about. Why did Israel have an army if one of the Ten Commandments was, Thou shalt not kill? You ever wondered that? Thou shalt not murder. (laughs) Okay, Dave's already on top of it here. So, the King James translation renders the Hebrew word there, which is uh, ratzach. I guess is how you'd pronounce that. Sounds almost like an insult a kid would come up with. Stop doing that, you rat sock. I don't know. But that, that particular translation renders that as the word kill. But most newer translations, we might say really more accurate translations, because there are a lot of issues with the King James in the way it renders certain words. But most more, more modern translations will render that Hebrew word as murder, which if you look up the definition of the Hebrew word in and of itself, you'll find that that's really the intention behind that word. That's the meaning behind it. It's something that's premeditated, something that's malicious. Uh, It's not some kind of accidental manslaughter. That word in and of itself sounds terrible, doesn't it? But, you know, somebody who gets in a car accident and might accidentally take the life of somebody else, it's not that they premeditated it, it's not that they murdered them, Uh, but sometimes loss of life uh, might happen that way. Or somebody might be defending themselves, as we're going to talk about here in a moment. Um, Let's let's jump to that here. So, first of all, having clarified that, that that kind of helps us to, to get out of the weeds on the issue somewhat. So, the commandment is best understood as thou shalt not murder versus thou shalt not kill. A big difference there, if you stop and think about that. But I want us to notice a couple other things in connection with this. Uh, the Bible explains that self-defense is not the same as murder. So we had talked about that just a moment ago or alluded to it. Now let's notice a couple passages here together. Let's come to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. I'm going to look at verse 21 there and verse 22. Jesus is speaking now. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, 
He takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted and divides its spoils. So here Jesus is not necessarily talking about the subject of self-defense, but he's talking about kind of a basic concept of it's natural for people to protect themselves and the things that they possess so that people who would try and come in and take those things or steal or rob from them uh, would be otherwise unable to do so. Kind of a similar thing is touched upon back in Matthew chapter 12. Jump back there for a moment. Matthew 12, verse 29. There again, Jesus is speaking. He says, How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first somehow binds the strong man. And then he would then go on to plunder his house. So, uh, again here we see this concept put forth that it is natural and we might say even right for a person to uh, defend themselves or protect the things that are rightfully theirs. And that, of course, would include um, the innocent lives that they would be entrusted with. You think about a father would be responsible for providing and taking care of his children, his wife, things of this nature. And so the Bible never equates the idea of self-defense as being murder. And also, and kind of more so specifically to the question itself, Serving in the government as, say, a police officer or a soldier with the intention of protecting innocent life and or punishing evildoers uh, is likewise not equated as being murder. And we can see that, and we're going to look specifically in the New Testament, actually, uh, to make that point. Let's look here in the book of Romans for a moment. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, we'll read the first four verses here. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? He says, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. But he, uh, for he, verse 4, is God's minister, notice, to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword, notice, in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And we even have a specific example of a soldier who obeyed the gospel, and was in no way, shape, or form ever condemned for the occupation that he held. And that particular individual that we're thinking about is Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Notice here in Acts 10, we read, verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, and he was a centurion. So he was part of the Roman army, part of this Italian regiment, as it was known. And notice it further describes his character. In verse 2 it says he was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to all the people and prayed to God always. So here's somebody who was surging, uh, surging, serving as a soldier, but yet described 
by God as someone who was well-respected, somebody who prayed constantly, who feared God. Now, we know, of course, that he still needed Jesus, and Peter was sent to him and preached to him the gospel. But you notice as you get to the end of the chapter that we don't read any verse where Peter arose and said, now, Cornelius, you must forsake the office of a soldier because that is murder and sinful and something that you must not be associated with. We don't see anything about that in there, do we? And so, again, we see that there's a distinction that the scriptures make between what we might say killing on occasion, taking of life, that is not necessarily on the same plane as murdering someone, which is blanket condemned uh, from cover to cover in the word of God. So hopefully that helps to answer that question for us. So we got Marky Mark here on the screen looking confused, but now we're at the end of the lesson. We've answered these questions, so now now he's happy. Now he, he understands all these things. So hopefully all of us are likewise smiling now that we have studied some of these things together. And and again, we may not always have uh, the most precise or clear answer for some of these what-if type questions, but I think that we can uh, make some pretty concrete conclusions based on what God has chosen to reveal to us. And so we must take the time and the energy and the effort to seek out those answers as best we can. And so that's what we've been striving to do here tonight. I'd like us to conclude by noticing a passage in 1 Peter 4. And we're just going to look at verses 17 and 18. And here Peter is discussing the judgment day, and we've been kind of touching on that some this evening as we've answered some of these questions. But he says, The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So that's a pretty humbling question to stop and think about. It's a question that Peter asks here. We know that not everyone who says to me, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, is going to enter in on that final day. There's going to be a lot that he looks at and says, I don't know who you are. Because they practice lawlessness. Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23 describes that sad situation. And so even those who have put on Christ cannot necessarily be living up to his standards and can find themselves ultimately condemned because of their lack of true faith, their lack of true obedience to the instructions that were given in the Word of God. And if that's the case for those that are at least making an effort in some capacity. What about those that don't even, pardon me, don't even obey the gospel at all? And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel at all. Or maybe you have outright rejected something and you've gone back into sinful practices and you need to likewise again repent and and come back out of that. Now we're going to sing this song of invitation at this time and if there's anyone here who needs to be baptized into Christ, to have their sins washed away, or they need to come forward and repent of something, ask for forgiveness before God, and and allow us to pray with you and pray for you, or you need encouragement in whatever way, we'd love to assist you as best we can. And so, if that's you this evening, we would ask that you would simply make that known, come up to the front at this time while we stand together and sing the chosen song.